longevity, lifespan, living a healthy life. All these things are really complicated. You hear things about Brian Johnson, George Church, Aubrey Gray, the 20 plus other episodes we've had on this subject on the show. And it's a bit complicated. What's true? What's not true? What's out there? And so I think what's really helpful is when you can talk to a medical professional that's on the front lines trying to help people live a long and healthy life. And today we found that person. She's also someone who is a nurse practitioner who you normally don't see as the director or leading the charge on these things, not because the position or the education doesn't help with that, but because that just seems to be the way it is. There's usually a doctor or a PhD, you know, leading the whatever at the top of the pyramid. And it's really cool to see Danielle uh, at the apex of her career in this role, helping people, uh, caring about her patients and really trying to make a difference in this world. She is the chief executive officer, medical director, and nurse practitioner for Everest Health Partner. She's also a Methuselah Foundation Fellow. Additionally, and this is just more like a fun aside, I believe she looks and sounds like someone from Marvel. If you can guess who that is, I will tag you in the show notes. Just as a fun thing, I thought it was funny. I think Daniel got a laugh at it post-episode when I pointed it out. Additionally, links to the website and everything about it will be in the show notes. Thank you, everybody, for coming today. Let's stay curious and learn about Danielle Everest, Longevity Healthspan on this episode of the Learn With All Show. Parents, relatives, people, like pretty much everyone listening in, probably someone they know is like an aging population, which is essentially where you got your start. And so I, I am always curious when people start anywhere and that they're, in, they're somewhere else now, which is where we're going to get into today. Um, was there a particular trial by far, fire or anything working with that population that made you want to get into health span and longevity? Yeah. So, I mean, I I was working as a registered nurse for about 10 years before I went back to school and then started Everest. Um, and most of that was direct patient care with the geriatric population. So I started out in surgery, dermatology, and then most of what I did was working in nursing homes and working with case management, which is a type of nursing where you kind of... Um, basically manage all of the different forms of care and build a really, really strong relationship with that individual and even their families. Um, and I also did some end of life care, which often happens in nursing home settings. And there were a lot of individual patients that I really came to love and I really built a relationship with them and their families. Um, one patient in particular, it was a husband and wife. And um, I mean, she ended up really, really suffering with depression and wasting away and dying much younger than her physical body would have warranted. Um, many times I, I see in the patient population in general, and especially with the aged, we start making little decisions that add up in, uh, into us dying earlier. Mm -hmm. When we stop enjoying life, we stop exercising and we stop engaging socially and we start not caring about all of the day-to-day -day things. Um, and at the time I was already doing this research with the Methuselah Foundation. And at any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial and it tells Google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching. Thank you for everyone thus far who has commented, liked, subscribed and told their friends. I knew there was more we could do, and I just was very powerless to make a meaningful difference in this patient and in the rest of my patients' lives. And then particularly when COVID hit, um, I was still working in a nursing home setting right as COVID was starting, and we were building the like logistics, the business side of Everest before starting seeing patients more than just a VIP level. And same thing. It, 
the medical industry is just kind of a factory. And that's not generally great for <laughs> the people involved in that. Um, and that's multi-level, right? Like, but I'm, I'm monologuing. Mm-hmm. No, it's good. I, I like where you're going with it. The, uh, I, so many longtime listeners of the show know that I've been in and out of the ICU and ER when I was in my early twenties. And so, uh, hearing from another person, um, but that's the way it is a lot. Like I hear a lot from people who are on the show who are an expert in these things or people who are listening in. Um, I think there's even a term for it. It's called punting where like, there's a problem and you go to see a doctor about it and they'll just like, Oh, it's not my problem. They're going to like throw you somewhere else. Um, so hearing that you didn't want to punt the ball, uh, that is metaphorically the people that are suffering, uh, is like very meaningful. Um, is there, if you are in your sixties and you're having these problems, is there meaningful change that can happen at that time? Yeah, Still? absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, the earlier you start, at least with the current level of options we have for longevity health span medicine, like we don't have a magic pill that suddenly reverses 40 years of life. So the earlier you start, the more magnitude of benefit at the end of the day you'll get and, you know, better quality of life in the meantime. But I have patients in their 70s, their 80s who have drastically improved their health. And actually in that patient population, a lot of times you'll really see the the improvement and a much higher level versus someone who's 20 we're really we're fine tuning we're optimizing but unless you're like a performance athlete you might not really feel a huge huge difference or if you happen to have a chronic illness but someone who's 60 70 80 on average is already going to have like three chronic illnesses so if we're able to get things back to homeostasis feeling so much better engaging with with the world better, being more productive. It's so multi-level um, in terms of like the, the holistic benefit to people's lives and then the people around them too. I mean, then it's less stress on the family to help to provide caretaking. And yeah, I think it adds a lot of hope to people too. I mean, usually I see with patients, they're like focusing on maybe three very physical goals when we first start out. And then somewhere between three and 12 months later, they're much, much healthier. And all of a sudden they're thinking about doing pull-ups and running marathons and opening businesses. And the possibilities really are endless. As humans, we are capable of so much. Um, and I think it's it's very fulfilling for me being able to help people get that hope again, feel like they're 20 when they're 70 and feel like they have so much more life and possibility. I think the founder of Popeye's Chicken, uh, he founded it when he was in his sixties. He he also had like a shootout too. So like, there's no there's no saying that you need to like wow sixty nine to retire. <laughs> like you'd be like Popeye, uh, the Popeye's Chicken guy, Colonel Sanders, who uh, who literally uh, had like shootouts with other uh, KFC uh, fried chicken uh, restaurants in his in his town. Um, wow. The for so as people age and if you. Is there a big difference? Um, I suspect there is based on what I've been reading is that uh, like, let's say like I'm really overweight, like that has a compounding effect as you age. Uh, is it, can you undo that? Or is it, you just mitigate it with what happens at that time with w- what you're saying? Is in like, does it layer on in such a way where, um, I suspect that's a yes. I suspect like it, like the earlier you can get these things off, the better it is in the future. But I am wondering to the extent like trauma, pain, the things that we don't do effectively uh, add on to things that essentially we can't get off. We just have to manage at a certain point. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, many times there is some level of lasting negative effect 
sometimes positive effect, you know, if we're carrying around more weight, then we're building more muscle and more bone yeah. to support it. Um, but generally speaking, yes, if we're dealing with chronic diseases, then our body isn't able to function as well overall and isn't able to manage the onslaughts from external forces, like getting COVID, for example, we're not as able to fight it, we're then more likely to have lasting effects and more negative problems. But I kind of like to look at it from the opposite angle, which is Mm -hmm. when a patient comes to me, usually most of the issues that we end up seeing are from like a couple of cores and the interventions most of the time all kind of work on those same things. So we're able to really simplify and isolate the root of the issue rather than just like slapping on band-aid after band-aid that's endless as the disease continues to progress that makes sense the i always wonder about that type of thing because there's a lot of people there's a, a segment of people that write in who have like a little bit of like a nihilism in them you know i feel like there's a little bit of nihilism and i assume you're about my age so like the millennials and so it's like there's so much opportunity out there to you know build a company like yours or be like popeye's chicken <laughs> colonel sanders yeah, not exactly. to do things um, and so I always try to, uh, no matter where people are, they, you know, they found themselves in a position that they you can get out of it. And then with you know, companies like yours, like you can get healthier and, um, you know, do great things again. But one thing I've always wondered about, uh, in particular, when it comes to aging, uh, like you said a minute ago, like people always want to feel like they're in their early twenties, like in terms of energy levels. Um, but I've always felt like, uh, is it, is that like a thing that we can actually achieve? If, is it like a testosterone thing, like a patch or whatever that gets people to energy level back or like I, w- I always as I've aged, I've noted that I'm not as hyper as I was in my early 20s. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is very, very, very individual. There are absolutely people for whom testosterone is appropriate. There is a large population of people for whom it's going to likely cause way more problems and side effects than you would get the benefit. Sometimes testosterone is the root of the problem for fatigue. Many times it's not. Sometimes it's, mm. you know, intracellular functions. It's like insulin resistance and our body's ability to use the building blocks for ATP and mitochondrial function and, you know, all these different things and AD plus glutathione and the different pathways of aging inflammation. So many times it's just kind of our body isn't working at an optimal level and is just draining off little bits and pieces here and there. And if we're able to get health back to where it needs to be, then we just kind of feel way better. Yeah. Something, um, so we've been talking for people don't know we've been talking for like a little bit now as we were warming up for the show and when something up like i talked to a lot of people and something that surprised me about you so far is that like you're very like it seems like you're a nerd for this in the sense that like we were t- we were talking before and we were, we were talking about like global warming it's like yeah and you said uh you know human body temperatures are adapting for the climate too like we're getting <laughs> like our our, uh, our 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 temperature for uh having a fever is changing and I was like, well, that's so, such a nerdy thing to know <laughs> randomly. <laughs> uh, like, it's not like you had like a note card for that. Like, I don't know how you'd find that. Um, so the, is there like how, I don't know, like there's so many questions there that I'm curious about, but the, are there, are there like journals that you're just like eating essentially? Or like, what is like a day like for you? Cause I, I know a lot of people like, you know, on the show or, I mean, you know, a lot of people that will get a degree, but then like their brain kind of just stays there. Yeah. And it seems like you're constantly just ingesting a lot more information. Yeah, that's something that's super important to me that has to remain important for Everest Health because that is one of the core problems with the medical community, less the science community, because that's like their job is to find new things and to find things to find out about. But in the medical community, it is much simpler and it's built in to maintain the status quo. Um, It takes like 
depending on the study, it takes between 15 and 17 years for something that's proven in science to be beneficial at a population level to actually be a part of the guidelines for medical practice. And another like five years, depending on what the intervention is for medical providers to actually start doing it (laughs) and to start Mm -hmm. recommending it for their patients. So from the very inception of Everest Health, we wanted to make sure that it was a requirement that we stay up to date with what is coming out with science so that people aren't waiting and dying in those 20 years while we're figuring out what we're doing. So um, in terms of my day-to-day, I see patients. I'm very passionate also, as much as I, I enjoy the academic cerebral aspect of the science and the research, I also really love patient care. I really love getting to see that data turn into real things for real people. Um, So I see patients and I also mine the data to make sure I'm staying on top of what's new. There's certain keywords I use, like of course, longevity and health span. Um, But also each patient is really helpful for me in expanding my knowledge base. So, individual patients maybe will have chronic fatigue or hypothyroidism, you know, certainly the top 20 diseases that are common in primary care, but lots of unusual things too. And so every time I have a patient, I then spend hours (laughs) specifically researching them, their kind of cocktail of problems, family history, personal history, lifestyle preferences too. So if a person tells me that they're unable to swallow pills, then that sends me down a rabbit hole of figuring out what can we do for this individual. So that, that really keeps me on, on top of all the fun nerdy things I get to research. Mm-hmm. The, I was seeing a neurologist and uh, he showed me that there's like an in-house tool that the, the clinic they essentially had where it had like all the stuff you put in like the, the symptoms and it would um, give you like all the information or like different illnesses, give you all the information. It was like, it was better than WebMD or Wikipedia. And I'm, I'm still talking about getting access to it because I like learning a lot, uh, you know, hence learning with Lowell. Um, do you guys have such a system in-house uh, for when someone's presenting or what have you? Um, is that like a software? I forget what the name of it was, but there was like a cool database with all like the cutting edge stuff synthesized into like Wikipedia, like really easily accessible information. I wish if someone wants to help me build that, that would <laughs> that would make my life a whole lot simpler and more efficient. Uh, we're talking about building an AI to help mine the data, mm-hmm. but it becomes really challenging um, in the science field, uh, trying to get access and ownership of the research. There's tons mm-hmm. of different journals and databases, and they all require different, you know, logins and memberships and things. So uh, we have a couple of scientists, researchers who help us go through all of the data there is um but no not in hospital you need to build it for yeah, i think that'd be really useful yeah, yeah especially because thankfully it's it's a good problem to have but thankfully there's much more research on longevity and health span coming out it's becoming a field that has a lot more awareness than before mm-hmm. <laughs> but that means there's a lot more for us to sift through too which is it's a good problem but yeah that'd be great yeah and then uh just like a, a like a a step back to ask you a question about like uh, your genesis a little bit. So you became a nurse. What was the, what was the desire to be a nurse over like a doctor or a nurse practitioner, which I, you know, I think you discussed like that eventually you became, Um, I think I have a relative who's a nurse practitioner. So I I roughly know the difference there, but for people listening in, what's the difference between those and what made you choose the path that you chose? Yeah. 
So nurse practitioner, the biggest difference is the nursing theory, which is much more whole person, holistic, um, multifaceted in terms of different forms of medicine, including like therapies and different things versus uh, symptom or disease management. So just like there's doctors of osteopathy and medical doctors, those are two different theories also. Similarly, nurse practitioners are a different theory, much more whole person focused, um, which was something that definitely spoke to me uh, and my kind of philosophy around patient care. Um, and in terms of like practicality, nurse practitioners can, depending on the state, essentially do everything except like prescribe cocaine. The fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> can't do the fun stuff. Yeah. We but, can, still, we can prescribe medications and, you know, yeah. controlled medications and stuff too, but, um, not like, uh, uh, ecstasy or speed, you know, some of the, the hardcore things that are being researched, we wouldn't, we wouldn't put our fingers in. Yeah, is there a medical benefit to prescribing cocaine? I know it numbs the skin, but I don't know why I would need that for anything. Yeah, no, I mean, you would not be finding it in a pharmacy. Um, and it's certainly not in guidelines anymore, but mm. for like sinus surgeries, sometimes they'll still uh. use it to numb the sinus. I don't think that's a common thing anymore. It's definitely not part of the the standard for medical care. Mm. I really, mainly I'm using it as like an example of how yeah. similar things are and there's not really much of a difference. That makes sense. Where did the where did the business background come from? Where did the interest to build your own thing versus just stay at a clinic or stay at a, a GP's place? Like where did the where did that experience come from? Yeah, initially I was pretty resistant to business building. <laughs> um, I come from my my family is a family of entrepreneurs, and I'm very thankful for the amount of mentorship and support I had because I'm generally a pretty content person. And so I saw the issue in the medical community and my thinking was I can just bring this to a medical practice and do this for mm -hmm. them. And pretty quickly it became clear that unless I was running the show and had control over the quality and the cost and all of the different aspects of the business itself, it would not be useful to people in the long run. Um, and so that's really how it started. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful it's been challenging, uh, especially initially the amount of personal growth that's necessary to be able to successfully build a business, but it's been, it's been good. And I'm glad now to see a couple years in how much it's grown just organically. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. The, I think the problem a lot of people have, is like that bottleneck theory where it's like you hold off until you reach a certain uh, status or position in, in, in a group. But by that, by the point you get to that stat, that, that role, you no longer want to do them because you've been, like, oh, well, it's too dangerous, you know, you know, Debbie doesn't like it or something like all these different things. Um, so, so, uh, so it makes sense that like some, sometimes it is just, it's easier to build it yourself, even though building yourself is quite hard and difficult. Um, what, what made you want to have the, the dual role though, the CEO and the medical director versus just being like a finding like a CEO or finding a medical director. It sounds like medical director is always going to be in there somewhere because you yeah. really love working with patients though. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I definitely want to keep working with patients forever i have no intention of like ever retiring that would be my dream retirement would be <laughs> being able to do what i'm already doing um as far as ceo as as the company scales we probably will hire another ceo but in the meantime i'm really enjoying it and it's proving useful um with the the current level that everest health is which is um, you know medical practice with one provider um it's perfect and I really am happy that I'm the CEO of the company at this point because I'm able to control the direction that it's going. 
and able to make sure that everything is built in so that it, it really stays true to the mission, although the practical application of the interventions and the science is always improving, that we stay in line with that. Um, in, in the long term, we likely will be opening up other practices and, you know, training new providers and potentially having like a certification or a licensure. It, we're, we have a lot of plans to make sure that this is something that's scalable for the whole population because everybody deserves to live long and live healthy. Uh, mm -hmm. And for that, we likely will definitely need more, more support. Is there anything that you had to do um, differently as it relates to like a normal clinic that like, I don't know, any extra licensure or regulatory thing they have to do so that you could be working in with the focus of Longevity Health Span? Not really. I'm kind of uh, scrolling back through all of the things. The The biggest challenge is because we're, because we want to be available to as many people as possible for the lowest cost possible, we rely heavily on telemedicine. Um, mm. in fact, currently, that's really what we're doing. We're doing video and telephone-based medical practice. Um, so that makes it a little bit more complicated in terms of having to maintain licenses for every state. <laughs> mm. um, but that's true, really, honestly, post-pandemic, that's that's true in general. You have to have licenses for different states. Would you ever want to do, like, I think it's called a concierge doctor, where you fly out, like there's like a really VIP elite thing, or like there's like a retreat, you can get everyone in like different locations, and, like do like a, a tour of uh concierge doctoring i i only say like the group thing because then it would lower the cost to everyone involved but i think insurance would probably cost the same to everyone i don't think you get like bargain deals like that yeah you know we really and it's it's still not a a done deal answer right so we want to be mm -hmm. able to provide our patients with what they want and as we continue to grow i i think that's something that anybody would want is you know access to medicine all the time the challenge with that is maintaining the quality through the night and through different locations. So we're, we're going to need to train providers slowly and carefully, making sure that every single person that joins is aligned with the mission and that is sticking to the science. Um, and for me personally, I, I definitely want to make sure that I'm able to provide the highest quality care, which means that I can't get burnt out. So mm -hmm. me being, a, me being able to have, time off of work for the research aspect and for my own life enjoyment too is important. Although that sounds uh, superficial, that really makes a big difference when it comes to the quality of care from providers. I mean, I'm sure you've probably had experiences too with clinical care, cold, rushed, and that's not something that we ever want to provide by necessity because ultimately it's still a human interface. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think that's a superficial at all. If you're like you just said, um, if you're not at your A game, then people would suffer. I recently was in a hosp uh, doctor's office and uh, the guy looked bored, so bored. And I was like, I, I want to get out of here because I don't, you know, I think he, he didn't care at all. Uh, he needed to go golfing or something. I don't even know. You must have um, pretty good but, health if he wasn't. What What is it that he has? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I do have good health now, but like I've had doctors treat, act that way all, at all time, at all uh, aspects when I've been sick or not. I don't know. So there's um, like doctors, are, I think medical people are very well meaning. Sometimes the, 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 they're overworked. I think it's like the highest suicide profession, like the rate of suicide in medical professionals is equivalent to veterans. So 
Um, which is really just say like take vacations and like take care of yourself <laughs> so that you can like be helping people selfishly for a very long time. Um, yeah. The what what was the um, so I've had people on here who've been who've had fellowships, but I don't know the extent they're valuable. So for people out there who are at PhD, like what's the value of doing? I think it's like extra you know specialization. But mm-hmm. what what did you get from it that you found valuable? Oh man, well I mean it's kind of been everything. The fellowship, the partnership and the mentorship that came with it, with the Methuselah Foundation has been huge, but that's what gave me the ability to do all of the research that built Mm. the Methuselah protocol. (laughs) That fellowship and all the science that came with it, there really was no idea or ability to have a longevity medical practice. It wasn't a thing I knew could become a thing at the time. Mm -hmm. So being able to dedicate a lot of my time to doing the research. Initially, we were just kind of looking at what makes someone 90 and what makes someone 50. Like what are, what measurably is the difference? That was the initial target. And then from there, we were looking at, well, why does that happen? Like physiologically, what are the differences? How does that progress? And then what can we do about it? And so having that fellowship was very, very valuable because one, it really taught me to love research, which is something that continues to serve me, but it also gave me access to all of that information. Yeah. And then uh, are they, they're not for a long period of time, typically, right? It's only like a year or two. So yeah. It's a pretty lot of dense. Thankfully, this has been like an eight year <laughs> fellowship. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is wonderful. There's, there's still work to be done. There's still research to be done and. We're still looking for the answers. I mm-hmm. think we probably always will be. Always so you're, so like, time, but yeah. So it's like uh there's like two memes here. I don't know if you watch Dragon Ball Z, but saying always there's a long time triggered me a little. But there's a I don't <laughs> you probably don't watch anime. True then, uh, true now. <laughs> yeah. It's your your nerd thing is research. That's all right. I do there's no also there's no very much enjoy anime. But oh, really? I, I tried to go back and rewatch Dragon Ball Z. I I watch anime was my my workout. Um, mm. That's what I do when I, I work out is I like to watch anime mostly. Um, but Dragon Ball Z, I feel like I couldn't get back into it. It it was not as much fun as when I was like eight. Yeah, it is a little repetitive. There's like entire episodes where people just yell. There's like yes. no women in it too. Yes, the Hidoken like last for like three episodes. Yeah. Okay, so you probably would like the Studio Ghibli stuff then. If you're doing an exercise and you're looking for something modern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Howl's Movie Castle? Yes, amazing. I can't believe I watched it for the first time like two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been uh, recommending it to a lot of uh, the the late the women I know. I, it's great for anyone listening in, in general. But the like Sophie's story, like Studio Ghibli, uh, uh, Miyazaki is really good at like writing things from a female perspective, which I think is like really important. Like Sophie realizing, uh, this is a real tangent now, but uh, uh, Sophie realizing that like uh, she was she was beautiful the whole time, and she just needed to like stop being so, so like down on herself and stuff. I thought that was really nice. I know his movies are all so touching. I recently watched My Neighbor Totoro also, and it, it's amazing how much complexity and depth he's able to just pour into all of the different characters and like the secret storyline that's behind the surface in such a short period of time. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. The, uh, wait, the, do you just prescribe to the idea that Totoro is like the death god or something? There's like this theory that like Totoro is actually like death and like the whole time is like deciding whether or not to kill the mom. I'm on a tangent. I'll circle back after I this need question. to go back and rewatch it. Yeah, but like some, some, yeah, I know people make anything evil, but like, there's like the, these theories that like uh, 
Totoro might have been like an evil uh, uh, critter. You think um, so? That he was like trying to steal the mom's life? No, I I don't think so. But I think there's like someone someone there was like these really detailed posts explaining that uh, bas- basically like May offered a sacrifice of food or something, and yeah. then Totoro accepted it and then didn't kill the mom because of it. Oh, I don't know though, because he was kind of like like a benign passive protector in a lot of different scenes. Yeah, I don't know, I know how death would be protective in a metaphor. Oh, well- sense the i'll i'll send it to you yeah. uh afterwards i'll send you the this because it i don't agree with it but it is i like it i like uh crazy theories like that because it's fun and makes you think in a different way um but anyway segueing back because uh anime is fun and i'll ask you <laughs> at the end for some re- anime recommendations now that i know that you're you're into that stuff the um uh, you know people usually say they want to be in their 20s 30s or 40s 50s uh when they're in the 50s and 60s and stuff is is the in your mind, as someone who's on the front line and knows all this research, is it really the is the objective be, to be in our early twenties when, for instance, like our brains really don't stop, like they're really like completely go uh, are formed until like we're twenty five? It seems like if you were really ask people, people usually would want to be in like the thirties. But so, with what you've read and and your opinion, is the objective should the objective be changed? Oh, I don't want to be early twenties, like maybe like thirties, and um, with these types of caveats with it. Yeah, I, so I think that's a complicated question in that different parts of our body mature at different rates, just like our body ages at different rates in a negative sense. So I don't know that I would necessarily put a specific age on it. Um, definitely before 40s, a lot of negative adaptations start around 40. And then there's like a huge cliff for females at menopause and for males, usually around like 60, 70 is when like senescent cell buildup starts really putting taking things on here haywire um probably somewhere between 20 and 30 i have patients who for example i have one patient who's an athlete and he's in his 70s and he recently started the protocol and for him he's like noticing that certain things are like they were anecdotally when he was 20 and other things are like when he was 40 which is actually when he felt that he was performing the best so maybe at 20 we're really really unhealthy and then we like smack ourselves into into health in our 30s so what i would say for most of my patients the target is when they were healthiest and as far as the biomarkers go we want them to be in their optimal state which sometimes has an age range which then i would go for like a 20 or 30 or the the youngest mature adult that we have and can quantify um or alternatively, just optimal ranges, which may not necessarily have an age, because if we stay healthy, then we shouldn't really be like physically aging. So some things change specifically um, with age, and some things really shouldn't until we get ill. Mm-hmm. It seems like the as a woman, it's kind of nice for you because the aging's a little slower for you guys. Like you live I know, longer, but it's like real sudden. <laughs> but I think it's, uh, it's a funny thing. Hmm. I think it's like right. It's like a like menopause is like the maybe it's estrogen or something that's um like delaying aging. And then I think we had someone on. I forget the name off the top of my head, but they were talking about how like I was I was basically asking like could you turn off menopause if it's like causing oh, all these problems like uh, the menstrual cycle and just like completely skip it or whatever. And it's like you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> it was pretty dumb of a question, but uh, but because like it has so many positive benefits for women. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I I, I think there's certainly still more research to be done there too. Um, menopause is 
The timing of menopause is definitely related to certain reproductive cancers, right? So there's certain cancers like prostate cancers for male, for males and like uh, breast and uterine cancers for females that are not always, but very likely to be related to our hormone balance. And having less estrogen exposure in the long term is going to lower that risk. But for all-cause mortality, osteoporosis, heart disease, uh, like function, bone density, all these different things, diabetes, having menopause is very, very bad for that. <laughs> mm. uh, so hormone replacement therapy is not an option or ideal or safe for everybody, but trying to minimize just cold turkeying all your hormones all your, your reproductive hormones, particularly like estrogen and the progesterone, and then your luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, like going through the roof because they're not buffered. Our bodies are designed to have all these different hormones and chemicals and enzymes and stuff talking to each other and maintaining balance. And so with menopause, we really lose that balance and it affects all the other hormones because they're not talking to each other appropriately anymore. When you're, when you're are trying to establish a baseline, you know, um, if it, you know, someone going through menopause or just a general patient when they're coming in, is there a, is there a cadence to testing? So like it's a two part question here. Is there a cadence to testing to establish a baseline? Cause like one thing that I've always had a problem with is like when I have my yearly physical, it's like one data point, like maybe I was just like really healthy for that. Like the last like three weeks or whatever. Right. Uh, I'm sure it's like, it's not like, maybe it's not that big of a swing I'm expecting, but I just like inherently feel like there's probably an act, like maybe like once a quarter or something like for certain, certain tests. So like how, how often do you have to test? And then are there tests to establish a baseline? Like we mentioned biomarkers. There's a bunch of like everyone in there. Like it seems like everyone's trying to develop a new biomarker nowadays. But so then um, how often do you think testing is necessary to establish that baseline? Like, how, you know, and then uh, the second part is what biomarkers, um, what things do you really think are important to track when there's just like there's like a soup of, of things coming out of track of this, track of that cholesterol, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So we have a, a standard panel that's for males and a standard panel for, for females so that we can get a really good kind of bird's eye view of people's health that gives us an idea of their health as an organism, how their different systems are communicating with each other, organs, and then individual biomarker levels. Based on those results, we then, of course, build that Methuselah protocol that's individualized to them. And depending on what things might already be optimized or really off the rails, Sometimes we repeat the blood work the same week. Sometimes it's a month later. Sometimes we even will wait six months and mm -hmm. really, really focus on that specific protocol, adjusting lifestyle and, you know, supplements and stuff, and then get another touch point. Because to your point, it's, you can see it kind of with a, in a positive light or a negative light. Some of these biomarkers, like for example, glucose, if your phlebotomist really stresses you out when they draw the labs and you get a fight or flight response, versus or like maybe you walk to the lab and burn some extra glucose off this is something that's going to be different like moment to moment mm -hmm. so having more data points is going to be useful but it's not necessarily going to be useless to have this one data point here and of course we're checking other things to see how much can i believe this data point things that will give us an idea of average glucose or insulin sensitivity, um, how our body is using glucose, tons of different things so that we're always checking ourselves. Because ultimately, each biomarker, I mean, if you draw the same sample and send it to two labs or have the lab process it twice, there's always going to be a margin of error of like three to 5%. So we always, always, unfortunately, have to take things with a grain of salt and have checks. Um, some other biomarkers take a longer time to adjust. 
where like cholesterol or vitamin D, you're looking at a matter of weeks or months to really see a difference. Um, with cholesterol, I mean, you'll see a difference with a couple days of really crazy, crazy uh, lifestyle changes, but it's not necessarily going to be significant in terms of decision making. That's interesting. Uh, so I was a part of me that's running through this is if I if I'm at your clinic, like what's the what's the walkthrough? And I highlight like three things in particular, but this sounds like all of the like the expanded physical exam that you guys do. I think the average person when they see their doctor, they get it like maybe 10, 20 minutes. And so I'm, I'm, all this seems a, a much more involved than what you could do in like 20 minutes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's also why it's really important for go, kind of going back to why I'm the CEO and want to stay medical director in the long term is to make sure that we don't turn into a purely money business. But the focus is always outcomes and patient care. Um, the research shows that the more time someone has to be the one talking to their provider, and also the more frequent they're able to see their provider, the better the outcomes. And it's like very dose dependent, the response. Um, mm. So yeah, usually the first time I meet someone before they decide to become a patient, we talk for a half hour to 60 minutes and really establish what their goals are, their philosophy around their health. Like, are they someone where their health is the single most important thing in their life? Or are they really trying to just make a few changes that'll make a big difference, but won't be too hard? Um, and then we'll get the labs done. That's usually the next step. And then we go over the labs and that usually takes about an hour as well. And after that, sometimes the appointments will be 15 minutes, but we always have the opportunity for longer to talk to the patients. And that way we can also get really, really deep into health. So that was something that I learned and loved from nursing and doing direct patient care, like in the nursing home setting takes a long time and a lot of talking <laughs> to kind of figure out what's going on with people. And because lifestyle has such a huge impact on our life, on our health, a lot of times it's something really simple that might maybe is making it so we can't sleep or really simple that's making it so that we aren't able to do exercise like we know we're supposed to lots of different little things and um building that relationship is really helpful to distilling the issues and the responses yeah the there was a a friend of mine who um which will be the, the purpose of this like story is to basically ask you the question like how what can a patient bring to make it easier for you to do your job but the uh the story is that i had a friend who saw like four or five different it's a, a female friend so she had like four or five different uh obgyns because uh the first four had terrible like they were like do you want to use your uterus was like their first question and uh, it's like well they should probably ask you how you doing <laughs> like <laughs> what's going on you know all these other things and so um i was like all right just like make an excel spreadsheet and just like chart whatever symptoms you're feeling uh and then like anything that goes around with around it and then like just bring that to the doctor yeah and just you know you know and like when they finally did that uh the doctor went from uh you know I think this might have been a better doctor in general. You know, they didn't, you know, offer to rip the uterus out, but the, uh, they were like, I know exactly what this is. I've seen this like 20 times, but like, it's very weird because it's like it's presenting differently. And so I always uh, like half the equation sure is, you know, how well you guys come prepared and, you know, hungry to help the patients. But I think also there's a level of what can a patient do to come ready with the right information uh, to help you do your job. And I've, I asked that of every doctor or medical professional I've ever spoken to. I can tell they've never been asked this question uh, for the most part. They're like, oh, wow, that. How can, how can you make my job easier? But so anyone's <laughs> looking to, you know, join your clinic or whatever, 
um, what can they do? What can they track to make it easier when they come in? Instead of like, oh, I think two times a week. So, oh, it's actually like three times every like four weeks. Now here's my data and that type of thing. Yeah. So in terms of making, getting the most out of a conversation, for example, just being willing to tell me regardless of how they perceive the information, um, being open to telling me things that maybe you need to improve. For example, with Everest Health, where we're always trying to improve, but also what's ideal, what's optimal in terms of lifestyle supplements, whatever, is not likely what we're going to end up doing because it might not be real, realistic and reasonable. <laughs> so if there's barriers, if there's issues, if you know, I tell you to eat oatmeal and you really, really hate oatmeal, then just being open and sharing that. In terms of tracking, um, I really, really love when people track their food intake. It makes things really a lot simpler and getting good quality of life. And sometimes really simple changes, but it's hard for me to know in the vast world of food options, <laughs> what people are liking, what times they like to eat different things, what flavor profiles, textures, and the food choices that people are making and how it's affecting their health and how we maybe can treat, tweet that. Same thing with exercise, um, not just frequency, but type of exercise, intensity. I really love when people have a, uh, an Apple Watch or any tracker. I can work with any tracker, but I really do like the Apple Watch. Um, very accurate data. If you can deal with having to charge it every day, it's really fantastic. And there's a lot of like raw data that's available through the Apple Watch too. Um, gene testing is not a necessary thing. Um, there's a lot of controversy over whether that maybe makes people depressed. I haven't really experienced that too much. Um, maybe it's my patient population self-selecting for individuals who are open to the possibility of illness and knowing that there's things we can do about it that are more positive. Um, but that's really, really helpful because there's a lot of genetic tendencies that it's helpful to be aware of. And then we can kind of get around them or address them more carefully. I don't want to do uh, gene testing. My, my doctor always says it's probably not relevant to you. Uh, I was like, well, I don't know. I have good insurance. Can we just, can you just take my DNA and run it through a lab? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't, I honestly, I wouldn't do it through like a lab core request. Mm. Um, so because they are only going to be testing like a few genes. So unless you know, there's a family history for something specific and you want a double check, I wouldn't waste your money. It's gonna be very expensive and you're going to get a lot less data. Um, I would say like Nebula and Dante labs are really fantastic. They're definitely more expensive. Um, but they check the, the DNA multiple, multiple times, like 30 to hundred times to make sure that it's wow. accurate, that there's not, um, problems with it. And it's much more involved, um, more options. They're testing more things than like 23andMe or Ancestry, MyHeredity. Um, of those three, <laughs> you can also access the raw data. And if you're, you know, a data nerd like me, you can go through the raw data and look up the specific genes and figure out if if you have like, you know, the APOE genes or mm -hmm. Ehlers-Danlos or celiac disease is in, is in there too. Um, tons of different things. Um, but it's just not necessarily quite as accurate. And you have to go through the trouble of filtering through everything and then figuring out what it means. Or you can give it to me and I can help with that. But Dante and Nebula are really great. Yeah, I, I was just thinking if it's really expensive, I wonder if I could get like uh, George Church to write like a, a thing for me. So I can oh, get cool. a discount since uh since he did the DNA uh, uh human uh human DNA uh, project, but um I doubt I doubt I would want to. Maybe like, he can just run it for you. Yeah, that's 
that's true. I, maybe I should ask him that. It, well, he's, he has other things to do with this time. But um, uh, anyone, anyone who wants to run my DNA, you're welcome to do it. Um, unless you're up to the cloning or doing some other nefarious. Stuff. No cloning so For, far. So far that you would admit. Uh, but anyway, so the um, are all the things that you guys do? Is it covered by insurance, or is there a level of like, um, or is there like some cutting edge stuff that you're doing that insurance? Because you usually insurance is quite like if it takes twenty years to go from science to the clinic clinic it's also maybe extra time for insurance who are mostly not medical professionals uh pre-authorization in particular irritates me but um how, how on board is insurance to the practice that you're using yeah we so everybody deserves good health everybody deserves to live as long as possible and so equity is really really important to us we're still working on that um we we are working with insurance companies to do something called capitative healthcare. We haven't don't have it mm. set up yet. To your point, I mean, insurance doesn't like to cover really anything. This is my opinion based on what I observe <laughs> is that insurance doesn't really know if you're going to stick with them next year or not. So their goal for business purposes is to spend the least amount of money on you as possible regardless of whether that's going to cost them more in the future. Cause you would think like preventative medicine is the best thing in the world. You're yeah. going to cost way less if you stay healthy, right? You're going to be able to contribute to society longer. You're not going to be taking medications. Your family members aren't going to have to quit work to take care of you. That's good. But for the insurance system where we are, that's really not something that's going to be beneficial to their bottom line. So for example, like if I undercharge for my time, that's considered fraud. If I tell the insurance company, because there's only a certain number of minutes that I can spend with someone, period, and a certain number of diagnoses, problems that I can address. You probably have also experienced going to the doctor and them saying, why don't you come next next week for this issue? Like, oh, we've talked about this, this, this. Why don't you come back next week? And part of that's because they can only charge a certain amount for the time. If I tell the insurance company that I only spent 15 minutes with you, but I ended up spending 60 minutes with you, then they can consider that fraud too. So we don't work with insurance in terms of the membership. Um, labs and stuff many times can be covered by insurance. It's kind of a gamble if they determine that it's not like, you know, medically necessary because it's aligned with prevention, um, then they won't cover it. Uh, I kind of work as my own insurance. I've negotiated rates with LabCorp and Quest. So they charge between 86 and 90% less for it to go through Everest. Um, whereas an insurance company, they charge them more because insurance isn't gonna pay for it anyways. So if you try to charge it to your insurance and the insurance says no, then you're stuck with the insurance rates, which are much higher. Mm -hmm. So for example, I had a patient um, locally, Kaiser's a, a big you know medical umbrella, insurance umbrella, and they wanted to use their insurance. So they weren't even able to get all of the labs we usually do. And they were charged $400. Versus just doing the whole standard panel through Everest, it's like 110, 120, depending on if you're male or female. So we try to make yeah. it as affordable as possible. We don't want this to be something that only executives or CEOs or you know independently wealthy people can afford. We want it to be valuable to those people too, but we want this to be something that everybody can afford because everybody deserves to live long. Yeah. Is it? Are there nonprofits or partners that you can work with to do that type of combating of, you know, working with these different people to find rates mm -hmm. or what have you? I just, I always imagine there's like, a, usually someone like who's a zealot out there. And if not, maybe we need to make our own like longevity uh, insurance plan, less like, like a supplemental one, uh, so people can get uh, more affordable care versus, you know, 
um, you having to like fight all the battles yourself, I guess. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that as the research continues to be developed and there's recognition that we actually are making a difference in people's short and long-term health, then the insurance is going to have to change. I mean, it really mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. And people people decide what they're going to accept. So, I mean, the, fin the good thing is that we can work with like HSAs and FSAs and things like that. Many times medications will be covered, not always, but insurance definitely has to catch up as it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, I think the, in my head, as I've learned more and more about like the, earlier this year, I was looking into making my own pharmacy because I was just getting really tired of the specialty pharmacy I have to use and how they just uh, were like aggressively dropping the ball. And so I looked into like, how can I make my own? And, and uh, I've told them like, if they screw up anymore, I'm gonna make my own pharmacy and directly poach all their customers because I have the illness. But the, so they're treating me really well now. But so I've, I've also wondered like the last piece for understanding the insurance component like that incentive thing that you just said, where, well, I mean, it is yearly. So why would they care about you 10 years later? It's like, oh my God, that's, I think, I think that's the last piece I needed to really understand. They're not incentivized in the right way to appreciate people um, and take care of them. They're, they're, they're incentivized to see it short term as much as like a year seems like a long time to a company that's like over a hundred years old. Like it's nothing. And yeah. there's a million of you. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Never thought about that. Maybe it's not true, but it's the only thing that <laughs> it feels right. Made any logical sense? Mm -hmm. Like, wh why would this be the case? It makes no sense, but yeah, yeah, no, I, it feels right. Like, there's one of those like instinctual, like uh, trust your gut. It feels right to me. Um, I think we've talked about this a couple of times, but the what is the Methusia Methus? Please say the word and then protocol <laughs> for me. Methuselah <laughs> protocol. Thank you. I was trying to read it and uh, I have dyslexia, it's so it's, word. it did work out. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the Methuselah Protocol, named for the Methuselah Foundation, which was named for the longest lived Bible character, lived 969 years, according to the Bible. Um, so the protocol, it's really two things. One is the measures of health that are much more involved, but are, but are focused on prevention age when we have those numbers and optimized health so we can really start and see where somebody is with their health and then what we're going to do about it and then the other side are the interventions and that's like we've talked about a lot is going to be lifestyle changes um herbs supplements vitamins prescription medications used traditionally and off-label really anything is on the table as long as it's safe and proven in humans so we don't do any experimental stuff we're not mm -hmm. doing our own research uh, maybe, maybe in the far future, Everest will, you know, take out a research line because that is something that a lot of my patients are interested in. Um, but we want to focus on things that we know are going to make a difference and are not going to hurt people. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. The, especially from a liability standpoint, your insurance is probably much less uh, not, you know, getting paid people. The, yeah, no, you mentioned yeah. Uh, the you mentioned genetic uh, screening. Are there any interventions out there? Because people have been asking me more to ask questions about like mRNA editing and that type of thing. Is there anything out there in, in those arenas um, that is useful in a clinical application yet? Or is it still that, there, that there's still like research to be done on those things? Not yet. There's a lot mm -hmm. of really, really cool research. I think, honestly, the longevity field is going to be wild and totally different. And we're going to have a much greater magnitude of effect that we can enact in the next like, you know, five to 15 years. In the meantime, there's a lot we can do for epigenetics, right? So you've got this DNA in you. The question is whether it will ever be a problem or not, or if it's already a problem. 
And there's a lot we can do to get around that main really like stressing your body in a positive way, but not stressing it to the point where it goes off the rails and stops functioning ideally. Um, And also giving it the building blocks, supporting it with nutrition and our environment, our air quality, vitamin D, lots of different things. Um, So there's things that we can't really change now, but for a lot of things, we can really, really reduce the likelihood of risk and the magnitude of risk. Kind of like like a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. There's still the possibility that you'll get the flu, but it's much less likely and it's likely to be much less severe. I think the, like a, a minute ago, you were talking about um, how sometimes people don't want to do genetic screenings because it's depressing. But for the most part, it's like for 99 point, and correct me if I'm wrong, but for 99.99% of the things that you'd see, there are things that you can have some intervention, like the APOE gene. There's uh, people that have both pairs, like from one from each parent, and it's still not a guaranteed you're going to get Alzheimer's. It is basically you really want to watch your diet, exercise, and do all these things right. Uh, to extremely minimize it because i think the there's been some research out where they consider um dementia and a, a m- number of age-related neurodegenerative diseases to be lifestyle illnesses like things that could have been prevented i think they were saying that up to like 30 to 30 40 percent of them this was like five years ago so maybe it's a bit different number now um are things that you, you, they potentially could have not had them if they just did the right things so it's, yeah. as much as it may depress people for the most things that you're going to find as it relates to what you're working on there are things that you can recommend and work with people on to help them be better and like counteract those things. Yeah. So um, arguments against genetic testing, I've heard that being one. Um, I've also heard like, okay, well, if I'm supposed to be doing the best lifestyle anyways, why don't I just do that? And then I don't have to do genetic testing. Or Mm. if I'm not going to be able to really change it, why would I want to know? Or if it's not really going to make that much difference, why would I, why would I check? But really the answer is the same in all of them. And it has to do with how you are motivated individually. One. And two, sometimes what's true at a population level isn't true for you individually. (laughs) So for example, there's certain genes that limit our body's ability to access and or use and transport nutrients. So in that case, you would need a, a higher level of, for example, B12 than the standard person because your body doesn't use it right. You need more or iron, you know, there's so many different things. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that information, then you don't know. And you don't really know why you're not optimized. Yeah, I I think that it's like, um, some people don't want to know, because they're scared. But I think when you hear you talk about it, and they look at it's like, well, unless it's like Huntington's disease, like, for the most part, you're probably not going to find something that's terrible. At the same time, I always wondered, like, how do you know what diet's right for you? Like, essentially, you're raised into your diet, you're raised into many things, but it's not necessarily the most optimal thing for you. There's usually like some like socioeconomic historical thing for why like, you know, uh, my uh, people that I know are like really into potatoes. And I think that many of my friends are just like 90% potato. Like my wife is like probably 95% (laughs) potato. Um, And that's fine. But it's like, uh, maybe there's like some aspect of potato plus some other things that would probably really help her or make her as healthy as possible. And and it's like, no, I just really like potato. Um, But like, yeah. Not knowledge is power, right? So I mean mm-hmm. also the likelihood that you would have something that is like a Huntington's without your parent, like you probably would go into that situation knowing that mm-hmm. there's a good chance that there's an issue. And then you get to decide what you do with that data. But for the majority of people, there's still the chance that you won't have that 
effect of the DNA. And there's always a chance that you will. But I feel like for most people, it's a really good motivator to do the things we need to do. And for us Mm -hmm. to know the things we need to do, just like blood tests. There's a lot of people who don't want to go to the doctor at all because they're afraid of what will, will be found. But then they're unfortunately living unhealthy that whole time. And sometimes it's really easy fixes to just enjoy life and thrive a lot more. Yeah, there was a, I think John Glenn, he's the, one of the astronauts that went into space. He would often, his heart, everyone else's heart rate would be like, because they're, they're riding on a, a bomb. And his would just be like, he was like taking, he would actually take naps while the rocket uh-huh. was going up. And so uh, people asked him about this. And he's like, why would I punish myself twice for something? You know, and I think about that a lot. It's like, if you're stressing about getting a test or like looking into your health or whatever, it's like, you're just stressing yourself out twice for something that typically anything, anything I ever stress about, it's usually like last, like, but seven seconds and then i like oh, okay this isn't that bad like yeah, the, it's usually like the pause from the yourself. doctor yeah totally that stress is bad yeah yeah it's like you gain weight more and stuff I mean, yeah the research around stress is really interesting it's not mm-hmm. necessarily the stress itself like the trigger isn't the problem it's the way we perceive it so there's people who have lots and lots of stressors but then the health outcomes aren't aren't a problem surprisingly And it really comes down to the way we frame it in our mind, whether we see it in a positive way. So changing the wording, for example, like I'm so anxious versus I'm so excited Mm -hmm. and the way it then affects us physiologically. That's also part of why the protocol, I mean, it depends on the patient, whether they decide to use it or not, but therapy is absolutely a part of it because we can all improve ourselves psychologically, emotionally too, socially. I mean, it really is not just about individual markers, individual markers of health, but us as a whole person, and then us as a whole system, right? We get interactions, we have health changes based on the world we live in, the people we live around. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so you mentioned this a couple of times, like what people's focus is where you align how you help them, which makes sense. If someone is trying to be the best physical for athleticism versus just being generally healthy, like you don't want to like, Take, you want to like take all the things that you probably would recommend to the athlete type person to like just a person who wants to be as healthy as possible uh, in a general sense because that probably is much more stressful or i imagine like the the two different types of intervention just limiting on those things would probably be somewhat different um but i've always wondered so for humans it seems like some of our species traits other than just having cognition which may not entirely be just for humans it looks like dolphins and other things have that but um another one is this ability to be like we're like long distance runners we can like run down most animals Mm-hmm. Uh, it's literally a competition. We can like you like you can like you can literally run down a deer eventually. Yeah, so but I'm not all, a camel. All, you can't. We can't run down camels. Almost, but it's just not. We're really good. Um, we're definitely not going to catch them sprinting. We're way slower, mm-hmm. but with endurance running, we can almost get there. But just the distance. It depends on how far we're running, and I'll, yeah. also probably the environment. Probably yeah, that's true. I, I I probably wouldn't do well in the desert. I, I'm like too around. Uh, been around green too much. But I, I I've always often wondered. How weird are Olympic people compared to like general population? Do we all have it in us to be at that some level of that peak performance? Or are those like outlier people? Are Olympic people essentially people who have just really maximized the long distance running that we've just talked about? Um, or are they like really special? And I'm sure there's a component to that. Like Michael Phelps, I think, has like a bunch of cool genetic things that allow him to have a couple edges. But for on the average, what what is the potential of the average person to be peak and like what does peak mean i guess it's something i've always wondered about yeah so i i think 
like like Michael Phelps, the, a lot of um, Olympians and professional athletes and amateur athletes self-select for individuals who athleticism kind of comes easy to. And then you get into the whole 10,000 10, hours thing where we can all reach our own potential, right? Which is what Everest is all about, about reaching, reaching the peak of your health and staying there. Um, but a lot of times it's maybe not less uh, the physical attributes, but I've noticed a big difference with individuals who are able to really, really optimize and who are able to achieve incredible things physically is the mental aspect, the motivation, mm -hmm. the determination, the willingness to fail and try again, the ability to recognize things like pain and discomfort and stress and just keep pushing through it and enjoy it. I was recently reading an interesting thing about um, a, a recent research around people who have done or haven't done yoga and the cold exposure. And it wasn't necessarily that the individuals who did yoga were able to keep their hands in the cold water like twice as long. The thing I found really, really interesting was the way that they perceived it. It wasn't that they tried to take themselves away from the pain, it's that they really leaned into it. So mm -hmm. I see that a lot of times with different aspects of health, the more we're able to enjoy it, the easier it comes to us, the more we're able to kind of hack into the the cost effect of the dopamine of behavior change, the more result we get. So yeah, I, I think anybody can be an athlete. Um, historically, we kind of have needed to, so, to survive before desk jobs. Um, it's just a, a matter of how much effort we're willing to put into it realistically. Yeah. Well, ever, ever since you mentioned that our temp our, our ambient body temperature is changing, I'm now wondering what else our brains have gone down as well in terms of size, about the size of a lemon. And so it's like, I wonder what we're involving into. Yeah, um, our eyes hopefully are it's changing. not like Wally. What really? Yeah, our, our vision, like in, in the younger, the like pediatric population, younger population, visual acuity is changing, eyeball size and shape is changing. Because our eyes, our iris is, an, is a muscle, right? Mm -hmm. so if you're always holding your arm out at one length, that you're going to get hypertrophy of the muscles, you're going to get fatigue. So same thing with our eyes. If we're always focused at like this exact distance, <laughs> then we're not as able, we're not strong enough to be able to see far distances and really, really up close. And also it has a tendency to create things like blurred vision and dry eyes and headaches and things because we're overusing that muscle at that one uh, fulcrum point, let's say. Mm -hmm. so, is a part of what you guys do at all like um but some holistic so it looks like you probably are touching on what i'm about to say but is there anything involving brain health because that's like what you just mentioned like a uh, mental well-being and then my brain's like my happy thing like i, I you know like it's where we live i kind of see people as like bio uh, biomechanical mech suits and the brain is just uh like the body's just like a part of that but um is there anything going on with the brain in terms of health, health span and aging um that people can do that you found to be very effective or that uh you guys are researching that you think is really interesting yeah, that's definitely been an area we've been targeting lately. There's a lot of supplements. They're really, really fantastic, like nootropic adaptogens that are good for mood, but also really good for like processing speed, learning, memory, uh, word recall, all these really fun things. Um, and especially in the geriatric population. So again, when we're young, we don't really see the huge huge, huge difference. As we get older, we really start to see a difference with the, some of these different supplements. Um, aromatherapy, which sounds super hokey, but there's a lot of really good quality research coming out about the um, variety of and strength of scents that we're exposed to, just really stimulation in general. So, I mean, I remember being back on the nursing home floor when there would be like baking cookies or positive scents, apple pie, 
even the people who had dementia would kind of perk up and start engaging mm-hmm. with the world a little bit more. And so preventatively too, it, it makes sense in a theoretical sense that stimulating ourselves with all of our different senses, not just talking to people and exposing ourselves to new ideas, but even scent and vision. There's a lot of research around being in nature, the difference of people who even just have a window or a plant on their desk, the exposure to nature makes a huge difference. Things like yoga, cold exposure, tons of different things. Um, As far as measures, it's not something that I require for patients, uh, but cognitive testing. And um, there's a really fantastic full body MRI company called Pranuvo. And they have an amazing brain scan for brain volume and brain health. Um, and they do a specific uh, screening that is specific for Everest Health, which is more aligned toward age-based and health optimization measures versus just you're healthy or you're not. Um, and Brain HQ is a really great training. I, it's unfortunate that it's a membership that you have to pay for. I wish it was free, um, but it's really fantastic for training. They've got a lot of good research behind it in terms of actually measurably improving cognition. That's interesting. I'll definitely have to check those out. But something I've so one of the things that's really unique about talking with someone like yourself is uh, there's there's like a like if you did like the wrong thing you would like notice it immediately you know like that I like there's a where, versus a lot of people who are on the internet who are just like I have this opinion and, you know, <laughs> like someone someone reading that opinion inter- changing their lives and having a negative effect of it would be very long and maybe they wouldn't notice it you know like there's there's research backing up what you're doing there's also practicality like if you if you told people to do something. Um, and there's like too much or whatever, like there's like a calibration where like it's really, really matters. Um, so I'm always wondering like, what is it like if there was like a, like a, like a, like a wiki, like a Danielle wiki, like all of your, uh, thoughts, like your whole people, like kind of like what, what Brian Johnson does. I think that'd be really interesting because, uh, I mean, I guess it's just, uh, papers, you know, like it basically a bibliography of, uh, all the things you read. Um, but have you guys thought about, I'm basically just adding work to you in this idea, but, uh, <laughs> doing anything like that. Cause there's just there's so much out there, and I often find myself, and I'm, I'm emailing someone today. Uh, I've been having an email exchange with someone who's like, "Well, you need to be more rigorous in, in the these, these topics and like pushing back on things," because um, there's just there's just, for every one thing that's right, like as a science person like yourself, like doing the right things, uh, there's like nine people with a lot of great opinions. But the, yeah, you know that's not a good thing. Yeah, well, I think it's also a challenge because not the quality of data, right? Like, so a lot of times patients will bring up questions, which is like my favorite thing. If they question the research or question an aspect of the protocol, that gets me excited because then I get to like rabbit hole and go back to the research and, and make sure that it's specific to them. Because a lot of times there'll be this really small research studies of like 11 people in Nebraska who are all 49 year old males. And the media will take it and all of a sudden say, this medication does this and that's bad and you should be terrified. And it was true for those 11 people or maybe like, you know, statistically, it was six out of 11 of those people where it was mm-hmm. true. But is it, is it something that I can actually apply to you as a patient? So we really try to focus on really, really high quality meta-analyses, reviews of literature, population level things. And then try to isolate them down to things that are going to be specific to gender, to age, ethnicity, to background, lifestyle factors. So there's no, there are not enough answers to all of the different questions, but we we're working with it. And there's a lot more, there's a lot more than there used to be, which is good. The body of research around medicine is becoming a lot more inclusive. Um, Historically, 
there is there is and has been very little data for women for various ethnicities and for age too they really don't want to measure anybody who's like over 70 in research studies because it's complicated and there's too many confounding mm -hmm. factors like you know where are my hormones right now or does this person happen to have parkinson's disease too many confounding factors but research as a whole the science community is getting a lot more inclusive yeah, that's something that as i've learned more about uh research and medical recommendations that doctors make the the limitation of the the limited population size of most clinical trials disturbs me greatly uh the that it's just like if it if you're like a, a white guy it's kind of nice because like most of the population that they've grabbed is just white guys yeah. but uh i don't i don't i like everyone being taken care of so it really bothers me that like recommendations for women it's like it's the population wasn't even researched on women for most of the time for a lot of the times and it really bothers me because it's like as a woman as anyone who's of a population that wasn't actually measured you're being told hey this is something that's going to help you and you try it out and it's like oh i'm the problem i feel bad i'm it's not helping me and right. now you, you not now I'll, not only are you feeling not feeling well now you probably have like complication because like it wasn't measured before and then you're feeling like even more dejected and more helpless and so i i'm glad that there's more people pushing for a holistic uh clinical trials and research because that i mean just inherently i think that's like that michael uh it's not Michael Jordan. This is terrible. People are gonna make fun of me. Uh, <laughs> civil rights, civil rights, civil rights leader from the '60s. He was assassinated. Not Michael Jordan. Martin Luther King. Thank you. Oh my God. People are gonna make fun of me for this. Michael. <laughs> Martin Luther King. Michael. Oh no, I don't even know either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Martin Luther King said like injustice uh, anywhere is uh, injustice everywhere, and I think of it that way when it comes to like these populations that aren't accurately representing people because everyone has a loved one. If you have like be really selfish about it, like. There's someone out there that you love that isn't going to be taken care of as 100% as they, as they need to. But you mentioned a, a second ago about like hormone therapy. And there was three different aspects of the many different things that you guys offer that I wanted to touch base on. We talked about the exam, the different ways that you go about it, like the, the detail of it, how um, even if you had like a wiki, a Danielle wiki, like ultimately it would have like a bunch of asterisks of saying like, but you're personally different. We have to do a lot of tech, like there'd be a lot of that. So it'd be like kind of like uh, not useless, but I think probably better use of your time on other things. But I'm curious on hormone replacement. And the longevity med, uh, I, I suck with uh, dyslexia medications. Thank you. Uh, like those two aspects of it, because um, in my family, there's like thyroid problems. And like that's a big issue for women uh, that I've been reading about is that like hormone fluctuation we mentioned, uh, like uh, menopause. So what when it comes to aging, when it comes to longevity, what what are those two uh, planks of what you guys do look like? Yeah, so really every patient we're focusing on aging well which is to say like not really aging and mm -hmm. living as long as possible but with a priority on those years being really healthy right so like most people initially think that their focus is longevity but most people don't really care if they live to 600 if they're still sick at like 80. most people mm -hmm. want to maximize the healthy years of life so really it's it's every patient gets some level of longevity medicine it's just a measure a, a matter of what philosophy they come into it and how much effort they want to put in and how much level of uh, not experimentation because we don't do anything that is experimental and like still under research. Uh, I mean, everything's under research, but not things that are mm -hmm. not proven to be safe and effective in humans. Um, but I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. You were describing the different uh, benefits of hormone replacement and longevity medications. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So for some people will even start an aspect of hormone replacement before they go through full menopause. And then it's mostly mm. like symptom management. Um, oh. And I mean, theoretically, it probably is going to make a difference for them long term in health. Um, when people start going through perimenopause, a lot of times we'll see big changes in mood, motivation, energy and sleep, especially boosts of like inflammation markers. And so probably if someone is able to get good quality sleep for 10 years extra, <laughs> that's going to, you know, result in better health. But we can't say that we don't have the research to show that of hormone replacement therapy through perimenopause. Um, but it's always very, very safe. We want to make sure that we're giving hormones to the level that are actually needed and are going to be safe. It's not for everybody. You know, if someone has had a clot, that would not be worth it. If someone has had a really, really strong family history of hormone lead breast cancers or uterine cancers, it might not be worth it. There's a lot more research that is playing devil's advocate with the original uh, findings of increased risk of breast and uterine cancer. So that may be something that will change as the research comes out. Um, certainly a less risk of all cause, all types of cancer aside from hormonal, but really trying to focus on the safety and part of safety is keeping people from dying. Do you, um, I don't, I don't remember if the jury is still out on these things, but are, do you guys, um, I don't think it is. I haven't updated this in a while, but is metformin, rapamycin, any of these other like hot buzz things that people are talking about, are they proven enough for you guys to use them in the clinic or are you still waiting for the research to come out? Yeah. Yeah. We use those in the clinic. Um, they're safe and proven medications. It's just the application, right? Mm -hmm. So particularly with rapamycin, we have to be really careful with the dosing, um, it takes a very long time for it to clear the body and the absorption of it is wildly different depending on the individual. So we measure it in the blood. We want to make sure that we're getting an effective dose and that it's clearing appropriately, that you're not getting an overdose and accumulation of the medication. Because really, of course, the risk and the concern is immunosuppression, right? Like it's originally it's an antimicrobial medication, but it's generally used at overdose for immunosuppression for people who have had kidney replacement to keep their body from attacking it. And that's not something we want. Um, we want to suppress the only one of them to our pathways. We don't want to be completely eliminating our body's ability to produce white blood cells and produce an immune system. Uh, we just want to kind of clear out inflammation and clear out senescent cells and make our body function at a younger level. We all have senescent cells. You, you know, even if we're 20 years old, they serve a purpose, just like inflammation does serves a purpose for healing and telling our body that it needs to do something. Um, but when we start to get accumulations of it, then our, our body is just basically just, you know, to simplify, it's distracted and it's not functioning well. That makes sense. The For Everest or yourself personally, is there anything that listeners can uh, help with? Is there like, is there a pain point or a hurdle? Because I think everyone would agree at this point that more clinics, more research, more people doing what you're doing. We actually want to take care of customers, not customers, clients. Um, and you think that, like, for anyone who's not been sick, you'd think that that would be, an, like, a given. It is not a given. <laughs> it's a very rare thing for, I think, the people meanwhile, but they don't do it. Like, the execution of these things is poorly. But so, what do you need help with, either you personally or Everest, to continue this vision? I think everyone listening would definitely want to, there's some way to pitch in. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think this podcast has been very, very valuable because we've isolated one already just in the podcast, which is help with like being able to sift through all of the research versus it just being a couple of nodes humans, right? Um, mm -hmm. That would be hugely beneficial. And we definitely want to make it more accessible, more affordable to more people. It already is very, very low price point, but 
being able to have insurance accept it or being able to improve that is something we absolutely want. We want everybody to have this. Yeah. I think that anyone who wants to make an insurance plan that's a supplemental one for coverage like this, that sounds like a really fun idea. And it'd be, yeah. you probably make money from it, which is, uh, you know, make, uh, kind of a nice circular thing. Yeah, um, maybe you just need so, like a like a time commitment. Like I will have this insurance as a supplement for like X number of years or something. Yeah. Yeah, because I think if it's uh, especially like that, it doesn't need to be like an expensive thing. If you have like enough people on it, it could be like 40 bucks or something a month. I don't know. I have to look at this. Someone, someone who knows any more about this, like, let us know. Um, and then, uh, so books. What books would you recommend people check out? I'm always looking for no, uh, new things to learn and read. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like, I think probably the main thing would be a really good, up to date textbook of physiology, anatomy. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're into that, <laughs> you probably will get a lot out of it just learning more about, you know, the human organism. Um, outlive from Peter is really awesome. I really enjoyed his writing style. I think he did a really good job of reviewing everything. Um, How Not to Die is a really great book for like the nutrition aspects. Um, And Longevity Diet by Walter Longo is also really good. I think it's true of any book, any, um, any collection of wisdom and knowledge that it's gonna age out. It needs to stay updated. Um, And likely there's some level of inherent bias from the writer or from the editors. Mm -hmm. Um, So take everything with a grain of salt. You'll probably read those books and have things that disagree with each other. And that makes sense because it's not necessarily what's going to work for you. Um, True Age is really good too, Morgan Levine. So um, she runs Elysium. Um, They do a, a a good biological age measure. So she did a really good job of kind of going through the different measures of age and all those different clocks and stuff, which is a big controversial thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to see if she wants to be on the show. Oh, uh, cool. Yes. Oh. All right. Someone wants to join our uh, podcast. <laughs> yes. Uh, we could, you know, we can have them come in, but they have to, like, uh, give content. But, uh, I'll, I'll have to, <laughs> to delete that. But um, anything non-age related that you're reading? Or, like, are you a nerd for any other content? Oh, no. Uh, yes. Um... <laughs> I am an avid forager and I'm a huge botany geek. Um, anything having to do with nature makes me really, really excited. So I was, uh, I just finished um, Insects and Arachnids of North America. I found that to be pretty fascinating. Um, I like sci-fi. So I've been getting back in like reading all of Asimov. Um, yeah, but foraging, I love it. I like it because it keeps me out of nature. It makes me active. I'm carrying like a whole bunch of stuff. It's fun. Are, I get to the, eat things. Are you um? There's a. I was talking to. Sorry to interrupt. The uh, there's a. Are you like mushroom foraging? So there was a. I had a fungi expert on, and he recommended a very specific foraging mushroom book, and I, I'll I can send it to you if you. If yes, please. I have like five okay. of them. I'm getting into mushroom foraging, but I do feel uh, nervous about it. I'm in a couple mm. of different you know group chats of of foragers and. So I've I've only eaten like three of my foraged mushrooms so far where I'm like 100% confident. Multiple people have told me that this will not make me uh, violently ill or dead. There's a, you, do you know the survival technique for testing out a substance to see if you'll have a reaction to it? Like you rub it on your skin, you rub it on the inside of your gums, et cetera. Yeah. And then they like chew and spit and everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I Does have it not work? a pretty strong... I have a pretty strong bias for novelty. 
and I have a pretty mm -hmm. strong bias for survival. And those things are always battling each other. Um, so usually I will try to observe something in the wild, like a couple of times before actually ingesting it, make really, really, really sure that this is what I think it is. Um, it's been really great for pattern finding and for, you know, like situational awareness. I think, yeah, with most hobbies, you, you grow in unexpected ways. But um, I really don't want to die. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Given your, your profession, and generally, I don't think people like want to die. Uh, you might want to uh, might enjoy scuba diving. I'm gonna yes. read more about that. It sounds like it'd be it'd be like a lot of fun. Yes, yes. Um, I'm a master scuba diver. I love scuba. Oh diving. wow! Okay. Yes, it's fantastic. Um, COVID kind of put the kibosh on that briefly, but I'm hopeful of going to Thailand sometime this year and doing as many dives as my blood nitrogen level will safely permit. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, you probably are also a scuba diver. No, I want to. That's why I was like, oh, that sounds fun. I can suggest something because in the Midwest, there's a lot of uh, it's cold. You can actually surf in the Midwest, too. I'm not going to oh, tell well, on the air anyone. I'll tell you off off record because I want to. The Midwest sucks. No one should come out here. <laughs> I don't want people to know about it. It's really cool. I'll tell you these really cool places. But yeah, there's some scuba diving stuff near me. It's like, oh, this kind of sounds what you're saying. Like you would enjoy that. But yeah, if you're already a master diver, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So then you. Yeah, so then, so, um, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm curious about what kind of dives there are in the Midwest. There's wrecks. Okay. There's a lot of wrecks. Cool. There's that. Is there wildlife? Um, I mean, besides, like, I mean, surely there's fish and algae and such. But <laughs> is, is there is there stuff to see besides the shipwreck? Uh, I think a, a lot of it's the weird topography of the ground. I think it's mainly oh. shipwreck. I'll have to look into this, but I think it's like 90% shipwreck. And then like 10%, this is really weird. Like there's a, a number of lakes that are like crystal clear for like 20 feet. Oh, cool. So uh, it's really like uh, that aspect of it. Um, it's mainly fish. It's mainly seaweed. And then it's like, it's probably just looking at wrecks. And it sounds like you're more into the nature side. So you like the, the reefs and stuff then. Yeah, I do. I do really love shipwreck dives, but mainly because they're a really great environment for, for the animals. Um, and mm -hmm. usually they're deep enough that you get some of the, the bigger ones like the sharks and the octopus and stuff. Um, if I were to make a recommendation, if you do want to yeah. do scuba diving, I would go to like a place where it's going to be really amazing and mind blowing. Like go somewhere that's got like Caribbean waters or something mm -hmm. where it's not super, super far away, but where you're getting to see lots of color, where the water is warm and you're not physically uncomfortable while you're diving, where the waters are pretty calm. Um, mm -hmm. I'm excited for you. It's also a really <laughs> great. Okay. So on the nerd aspect, scuba diving is really cool. Um, have you heard of like hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Yes, uh, near Brazilia and I discussed it. Okay, cool. I'm of course that makes sense. Um, so it's not the same thing physiologically because when you are scuba diving, you're not breathing necessarily 100% oxygen. One, mm -hmm. um, two, you've got the pressure of water, not air. And three, you've got the confounder of water temperature. So there are some physiological differences. So for example, like you have changes in blood pressure because um, like different kidney hormones are changing. It makes you like pee a lot um, to maintain your body temperature. And you do end up having more, uh, more of the oxygen going out to your extremities, but potentially more even because you're under activity. So you have less mm -hmm. circulation because of the cold, but more circulation because you're active at the same time. Anyways, why do you care? When you come up, you feel amazing. You feel mm. so relaxed. And also part of scuba diving, the practice, you maintain your buoyancy 
by like very consciously slow breathing. So the whole thing is like breathing practice under higher oxygen and under, under higher pressure. No, it sounds fun. And it's also like an affordable hobby. It was like, uh, was that or getting an air, uh, air, like a pilot's license, which I now suspect that you have as well. It just feels like, it feels like, it, just, it seems like you probably should get it like, cause it just complete the package. Like I can see you like helping out a, a, a client and then you jump in a plane and then you try uh, fly somewhere <laughs> and with yeah. And in the 40 minutes, um, you're, uh, you know, scuba diving, but, but yeah, that makes sense I, I, um, I love life and new experiences and new skills. And I think that would be fun. It's a very, it's a big time investment. Pilot? Invested pilot yeah so scuba diving we actually like got major on the cheap we found some years ago we found some mistake fares for the philippines and we went to the philippines for like a hundred some dollars mm-hmm. and we just that was our whole trip was just scuba diving i need to find a mistake mistake price for pilot license and like an extra uh, 400 hours the well the deal that I, i've been told you can do like the civil air patrol or something where you join when there's like a search party, like part of the deal is like they'll teach you, but like when there's someone's missing, you go up there and help like fly around and help them, which is kind of yeah. nice. Yeah. And then uh, there are someone was telling me that you can get like a pilot's license for like four grand if you know like the right people. I, I'm not, I need to email that guy, but I think pilot's license would be fun because I, I don't like being in lines. I don't like other people screaming <laughs> in my ear. And uh, I like the idea of being like, oh, hey, uh, Daniel, you're going to be in like Ohio. I'll fly out and meet you. Like that's so nice versus like driving like six hours. And uh, I don't know. I think that'd be like more of a fun thing. But I'm definitely going to do scuba diving. Um, was there? So I, I did interrupt you when you were saying foraging. Was there anything else that you're uh, nerdy about? Uh, oh, no, <laughs> I, mean, that's a lot. This is this is probably going to be boring to everybody. I, I just really like a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I really yeah. like anything that has to do with art. I like cooking, and particularly you know cooking that has to do with the chemistry of how different things interact with each other. So like you know, slow cooking and baking and, you know, trying to use like ancient and unusual ingredients for different things. Um, Salt, fat, acid, heat is the best cookbook in the world. Mm. Amazing. If you, especially if you don't really, I, I don't really like to follow a recipe. So having the freedom of understanding how ingredients work and being able to just play is really fun. Um, yeah, I like drawing and painting and playing with the dogs and yeah. gardening. I've gotten super into gardening this year. Yeah, I've been uh, working on drawing, which is fun because once you get good at drawing, like I'm not good, but like I- I'm on the basics of it. The world looks much different. There's a lot of times where I'm, I'm talking to someone's like, how would I draw Danielle's face? And I just it's <laughs> like, how would I draw that tree? Like, just, all the time. It's like yeah, fun. It's, true. Yeah, it's extra focus on uh, like it's 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 nice. And that like you focus more on the things around you and like how would you recreate them which i think is fun um so i recommend anyone like it's like pretty much free just pencils and pen you can learn these things yeah um, and you can figure out a lot just by like trying stuff mm-hmm. yeah can, like take classes no yeah it's like free it's on youtube like you can like and you can like you know when you do like uh working with hands or whatever i just google a hand i'm done in like two minutes you know i don't like That's find a, a hands human. are hard fear really no, hard. I'm not trying to draw feet. Weird. Yeah, that's true. I'm not drawing feet. I'm like, I'm pretty, this is not going to interest anyone, but like, I am pretty, I'm like, uh, my hands are getting human-like is how I'll say the drawing is so far. But, <laughs> it's not um, just a whole bunch of like hot dogs waving around. 
it kind of looks like a glove with uh, oh. hair. That's, that's, that's like pretty close. And then, all right, so you're looking for sci-fi books. Um, yeah. uh, is, there, is there a genre that you're looking for in particular? Like usually people like semi book recommendations as well. Yeah. Oh man, I'm interested to know what you like to read. Um, I have a hard time kind of finding stuff to read from people that I trust. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, will actually be interesting and engaging and um, teach me something also sneakily. Um, I like stuff to do with different worlds and universes, um, like the far future. I really was enjoying robots from the perspective of Asimov, but I'm kind of like over that now. It's been kind of a lot. Yeah, Which this is a book I recommend, there. especially it's called 1491. And there's a if you're into really into gardening, the Native Americans, uh, they had a they had for anyone looking watching, um, they had a system called Three Sisters, which is like the most, you know, of this. Yes. Tell me about this. Okay, I'm just saying, like, if you if anyone wants to garden, but feels like they'll kill it. Look up three sisters and just copy it. It's like it's the equivalent of taking three things and throwing it at a wall and it just falls to the ground and somehow grows perfectly. <laughs> like you really don't have to do like, it's just so smart. Yeah. yeah the book taught like the uh Native Americans have a lot of really uh cool things to learn about. Yeah, I think it's a testament to the more you do something very quickly, exponentially, it gets easier and better. Right. So like that, for example, you go through the work of like preparing soil and planting the seeds and like babying it and worrying and learning a whole bunch one year. And then the next year, the beans, plants and everything will like already fertilize the earth and then mm -hmm. they self seed and grow up together just nice and easy. Supposedly. Yeah. We'll see what happens next year. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's gardening on easy mode. But uh, is there anything involving uh, Everest or yourself that you wanted to talk about today that we didn't get to i know i think we covered everything but i was i asked that question because you never know what you miss yes i will probably figure out what we <laughs> haven't talked about later but <laughs> you yeah. were a really really good uh overview of everything